Let's turn now to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we have been singing, so we come specifically now to, to count our blessings, to give thanks to you for who you are and all that you have given to us. We give you thanks that you are God, our creator. You are the creator of all that exists. We thank you for the beauty that you have created. We thank you, we who, who are here and, and live in this community, just testify and give you thanks for each day of the beauty that we see about us here in this lake area. Thank you for that goodness that you show to us. We give you thanks, our God, that you are not as one who created the world and then left it to us, but that you are our king, you are our provider. You govern this world and you govern our lives. And again, we can attest how you have in the past, you have been faithful in leading us and guiding us in ways that we did not anticipate, in ways that we thought were mistakes and yet proved, as always, to be perfect in your will and your counsel and that which was good for us. We thank you for that. We thank you for this present day of how whatever is going on in our lives, whatever may be appearing before us, we know that we're in your hands now. That as you have been faithful in the past, so you will be faithful to your covenant promises. You will care for us. However we may see or not see what the future will be, We can know that we're in your hands and trust our Heavenly Father so to guide us. We thank you for these great truths. We thank you, our Father, then, though yet again we must confess before you our sins, of how we have failed to live up to your law, how we have transgressed your law, how we have been, how we have failed to be thankful to you each day, and to recognize all the blessings we have received. That we have continued to receive that forgiveness that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, who made his sacrifice once and for all that was sufficient for our sins. Oh, we thank you for such blessing. Oh, we thank you to know that our salvation depends not on how well we did this past week, how well we're going to to keep up in this coming week, but to rest upon the work of Jesus Christ alone. Oh, we thank you. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, who is with us every day, who has never left us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, the Spirit who will not leave us. And so we who have been elected from the foundation of the world, we who have had the Holy Spirit within us to regenerate us. That Holy Spirit who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. And so we can look with confidence to the future. And our Father, as if all these spiritual blessings were not enough, you give us countless more just in our everyday lives. Blessings of of family, uh, the blessings of health, the blessings of medical care that we can attest to, of the blessings of of friends, 
blessings of just kindnesses that have been shown to us throughout our lives and each day. The blessings that you give to us to be blessings to others. That you would so use us to touch the lives of others. We thank you. And so, our Father, as we continue in our worship of you now, as we hear your word, we receive it with a thankful heart that you would give to us this special revelation that we might know you, that we might know how you would have us to live, that we might know the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, for our scripture this morning, we're looking at uh, Jonah chapter 4, verses 3 through 11. And I encourage you to open your Bibles uh, there. But you'll also see the text in the insert instead of just having an outline, because you notice I never actually had an outline. I've actually put the text there as well. And uh, you're welcome to follow along there. We've come to the, uh, the final section of Jonah. Uh, to the grand finale, and uh, instead of reading the, the text to you, as I'm going to be going through the text there, I'm just going to uh, kind of get started right into it. And I'll begin with a question. Got a lot of veteran parents here, and have you ever heard a version of this statement? My life is so terrible, I wish I were dead. Well, I know, I know you have. And God heard the same thing from his prophet Jonah. And he had to deal with Jonah. And that's what this text is about this morning. We'd seen Jonah's initial reaction last Sunday when he realized that God was going to show mercy. He was so angry about this that God's mercy is going to be shown. And though, But we looked at that. And, and though it seemed kind of shocking to us, that he would be upset with God about being merciful. Well, when we took time to consider who God was being merciful toward, uh, the city of Nineveh, how it represented a pagan nation that someday would, would conquer and destroy Israel, well, you know, Jonah's reaction began to make sense. I mean, I think we, after a while we could begin to even sympathize with Jonah. I mean, mercy is good. But basically, the question is this, should it interfere with justice? Justice, that's what Jonah wanted, or so it seemed. And our text, as we continue to go through it, suggests that Jonah's sense of justice was not so just after all. Let's look again in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Okay, I think we agree that Jonah is getting a bit overdramatic. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to be angry. You know, you feel that your sense of justice has been betrayed. But really, is it better to die than to live? Something's not quite right here about Jonah. And so God is going to bring that out uh, up to the surface. And he says to Jonah in verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now, if you're reading uh, from the NIV, you'll notice how it's actually translated is, Have you any right to be angry? 
And so the question is being asked, is there any justification for Jonah to be angry with the Lord's decision to relent and show mercy? Now, that's a, that's a possible understanding of the Hebrew verb, and, and one could translate it that way, and many commentators understand it that way. But the actual Hebrew term that's translated as right in the NIV, and if you're looking at the ESV, it's translated well, that Hebrew term most often means to do something well, do something pleasing. And the root for the Hebrew word that's translated angry or to, to burn or to kindle, I mean, that's what it actually means. It's not just being angry, it's, it's burning, it's kindling, it just keeps building up. So when you put those words together, I think actually in this case, the ESV translation gets a little bit closer to what God is actually asking Jonah. He's not so much asking if Jonah has the right to be angry, but whether Jonah is getting carried away with his anger. I mean, true, I mean, Jonah does not have the right to be angry with God. No one does. But the Lord can deal, he can handle anger. The psalmist, other prophets, they get angry with God. But Jonah is, he's pushing things here. So much so that God's giving him a warning that he is letting, Jonah's letting his sense of, of justice, he's letting his anger cloud his sense of judgment. And so he's about to give Jonah an object lesson about this. Again, in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, when we first began this series and we were looking in chapter 1 and and you got Jonah fleeing there in chapter 1 and I can't help but thinking here what I thought back then. I had this image of God looking down, and he's having a little chuckle over Jonah. In this case, I remember remember my mother telling me that she found me one time when I was little. I was hiding behind a bush with my cowboy gun, waiting for Howard Leinberger to come by, because I was evidently very angry with him about something And I'm ready to do him in when he comes by. Well, Jonah's acting the same way. He's still hoping. Maybe maybe God really will destroy Nineveh. And so he goes out of the city, throws up this makeshift shelter that, as we're going to see a little bit later, it only offers kind of partial shade from from the sun. He sits down and he's waiting. He's waiting for something bad to fall upon the city of Nineveh. But little does he know that actually he is falling into a setup by God. Let's begin in verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, 
And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Now, one thing I want you to note here, that the word appointed, and if you're using the NIV, it's the word provided. It's used three times here in this passage. God appoints or provides a plant to grow. He appoints a worm to attack the plant and kill it. And then he appoints a scorching east wind that's going to attack Jonah. Back in chapter 1 and verse 17, the same word was used, that the Lord had appointed that fish that swallowed Jonah. And in back in one form, he, God, is credited with hurling the great wind on the sea. And clearly, one thing that's, that's being made here uh, as, as a point is that God is in control. He's in control of nature here, and he uses nature for his purposes. And again, I think he had to be enjoying himself with using nature to teach Jonah very important lessons about God's sovereignty, but here in particular about God's mercy. So again, Jonah wants to die. Now this time, the cause seems to be from the suffering that he's experiencing, and we can understand this. You know, he's in desert conditions. Maybe he's beginning to suffer heat stroke, and it's, it's understandable you know, when you really are suffering, you, you know, you want to die and put an end to such pain. But, but God's question to Jonah in verse 9 reveals actually a different motivation. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So Jonah is upset for the fate of the plant. He pitied this, this plant. Okay. And was Jonah a, a horticulturist? Was he had a particular love for plants? Well, no. His affection for this plant lay in that plant's capacity to provide him comfort. He valued the plant for what the plant did for him and nothing more. And this is where the Lord moves in. He points out to Jonah... The Jonah did not labor for the plant. He did not make it grow. He did not plant it. It is one thing to, to invest yourself in something, and then when you lose it, you know, you know it, has a, it kind of hurts you. But Jonah had done nothing. Okay? And furthermore, the plant had lasted a day. Um, you know, again, we, we might attach ourselves to a possession, even if it's not of great value, if we've had it for a long, long time. But if you've if you only known something or a person for one day, you know, typically you need more than that to really feel like a great loss, to, to really suffer over the loss of it. 
Now, in contrast, and this is what God wants to point out to Jonah, Nineveh is a city that has existed for hundreds of years. And it exists precisely because the Lord had labored to bring it into existence and to grow as he does with all of his creation. God is deeply invested in all living things, and especially mankind that he has made in his own image. So Jonah has pity on a single plant that does not know of its own existence. He's here a day and gone by nightfall. Should not the Lord take pity on a city filled with people? People who do not also have true knowledge of what is real. Now that's what I I take that meaning when it speaks of 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. Some commentators, or many say that he's speaking of children, but I've never seen that term anywhere else for children. And I think what he's speaking here is their spiritual condition. Now the other odd reference there to cattle, I've always thought, man, what a way to end the book about the cattle. But imagine those who are a part of an agricultural culture of people, they would not think anything odd about that and would have appreciated uh, God's concern about that. So, again, if Jonah's concerned about one little plant, should not God be concerned about many cattle? And so ends the book of Jonah. It just ends, just like that, with that question. We do not hear Jonah's response. Indeed, Jonah is the only person who leaves us hanging. You think about this. The pagan mariners feared God. The pagan king of Nineveh repented. The people of Nineveh repented. It's only the prophet Jonah, the one person in all the story who truly knew God, He is the one who is stubborn to the end. And ultimately, it is his negative behavior that is more instructive to us than his teaching. So what instruction can we get? What are lessons to learn? Well, one thing that is evident about the story of Jonah is that though his assignment to to Nineveh, he was going there to, to teach the Ninevites a lesson, it's What God really had in mind and the purpose of the whole story is what Jonah needed to learn. And so often it is with us. We're very, as we ought to be, are concerned for others, pray for others. Uh, We hear a good sermon, maybe you hear a sermon on Jonah and you're, you're praying for someone who you know really needs to hear that message. Or you, you think of someone in need and you're going to go, you're going to go carry out ministry uh, to, to those who are poor. All of that is right and good. But what we often need, in fact, all of those times are realizing that God is using those experiences to teach us lessons. And whatever we hear, we need to apply to us. Whatever we take to others, we need to apply to us. The Lord has much for us to learn, particularly when we are in the act of helping others. So it was Jonah who needed to have the sovereignty of God impressed upon him. It was Jonah who needed to learn obedience to his king. 
It was Jonah who needed to experience, literally, salvation from death. And it was Jonah who needed to learn what God's mercy truly entailed. Jonah had the head knowledge. He knew the scriptures. He needed to have that knowledge that was in his head be driven into his heart. So how about you? Even now, as you're thinking about others who need to hear this wonderful sermon that is being preached, is there something that God wants you to learn? Now, here are some lessons that I have learned. First of all, how anger itself leads to sin. Jonah is an object lesson for this. It is Jonah's anger with Nineveh that prevents him from doing his job of teaching repentance. I noted last week that Jonah would have scoffed at the Ninevites' feeble show of repentance. Remember, they they hadn't turned from their gods, not that we're aware of. And unlike the mariners, we're not even told that they feared and worshipped the true Lord God. They worship some gods, but we don't know that it's the Lord God. Okay, well, Jonah, why didn't you teach them how to repent? I mean, Jonah never brings up the subject. He only preaches doom. Repentance was the teaching of the pagan king, not the prophet of God. And so if one is a prophet of the true God, if one is a preacher of the true God, if one is a follower of the true God, ought he not give instruction about the true God, how to repent before him, how to worship him. And so we need to be careful of of not falling into the same sin due to our anger. Can you think right now of brutal nations, terrorist groups, wicked leaders, for whom it would actually be a disappointment to hear them repenting? To a point where they turn to the Lord or at least forsake their violent ways? You know, don't you really want them to get it instead? Or do you have a heart, as many World War II soldiers had, who returned to the land of their enemies so that they might win them to Christ? That's the, they did not let their anger, did not let their suffering overcome them. Well, Jonah had no intention of winning anybody to anything. And though he he never could have had a better opportunity to convert pagans to following, following the one true God, I mean, here it is. He walks away from his call. He walks out of the city just when they are most responsive to hearing him preach. His anger in this case was a God. And his anger at God led him to abandon his post. God is not acting the way that Jonah wanted him to act, and so Jonah forsook his assignment. He turned back, actually, to his original disobedient self at the beginning of the story. We also have to be careful that when God doesn't do things the way we wanted him to do, and we were going to do this great ministry or this great thing, and and now everything's been changed, that we just walk away from God. Now, another thing about Jonah's sin is that it caused, or his anger, is that it caused him to lose his common sense. This childish 
temper tantrum just leads to folly. It is better for me to die than to live. Give me a break. Come on, Jonah. And last week, again, I hopefully showed you that the Jonah had reasonable cause to be angry with God's mercy. I mean, it seems reasonable. Until he gets into this, well, it's better to die than to live routine. I mean, there were other biblical characters who complained to God. There's Abraham, who actually challenged the Lord with these words. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And he was actually trying to forestall the destruction of a city. Moses complained to God. The Psalms are filled with complaints about how God is letting the the wicked get the upper hand. But underlying all of these complaints is a desire to understand the ways of God and certainly not to be disobedient to him. Jonah is simply sulking and he's blowing everything out of proportion. Well, we can be culpable of the same thing if we let anger burn, or kindle in us. As we go through trials, as we go through heartache, we are liable to get angry with God. Now again, to be sure, no one in truth has a right to be angry with God. But even so, it's understandable in our human frailty, and God can handle it. I've had people ask me, you know, know, I'm feeling angry with God, is that all right? And And I say, well, God can handle it. Look to the Psalms. They're always being angry with God. Oftentimes, it's that very anger that leads us to a deeper understanding of our God and eventually to a deeper trust in him. And I know many of you can attest to that. But just as often, our anger can embitter us against God as we let that anger burn within us. As we are surprised by God, as we are, we're taken aback by unexpected hard events. So when these things do happen, the real question for us is this, how will we respond? How will we let our emotions run? If we are initially possessed with anger, will we let it force us to deal with our own misconceptions of God and, and superficial beliefs? Or will we let it cause us to walk away from God? And I've seen it happen in both ways. I know those who, whose tragedy awakened them to how comfortable and superficial their faith really had been. And they were led into a deeper understanding of God's mercy. On the other hand, there are some I know who have walked away from the faith even after years of faithful service because God disappointed them. And they let their anger just let them uh, walk away from him. Be careful what you let that anger do. Anger can actually be good, leading you to deeper understanding, or it can be terrible as it was with Jonah and cause you to flee from the Lord. And then there's one other thing that Jonah's anger uh, led him to do, which is really pretty much at the point of this passage. Jonah lost his sense of true justice. Jonah became more compassionate for a day-old plant than he did for a city that was filled with the images 
of God, that is, of people. And what controlled his sense of justice was how justice or injustice impacted him personally. It notes here, it, the only time Jonah's glad, I mean, I mean, it says that he's exceedingly glad is when he had that plant. And it was giving him the shade, and he liked that. If the plant had been somewhere else and was not providing him the shade, he could have cared less for it. And this, more often than not, is true of us. It is what skewers our sense of justice. I mean, you think about this. We, we hear about awful acts of injustice. We're watching the news. We see the latest act of barbarism. It bothers us. And we think that we're appropriately appalled by the injustice. And then, well, then we watch the, the game on TV or the, the TV show or the movie. And quite honestly, we pretty much forget about it. But let's say a friend shares a story about receiving bad service, such as bad restaurant service. Speaking of bad restaurant service, I can still think 10 years ago to a particular restaurant in Philadelphia was for my taking someone there on their birthday. The service was so terrible. I mean, I really think thought that the waiter needed to be fired until I met the the manager, and he didn't do anything. I, th- I think he should have lost his license. And actually, that restaurant closed down a few years later, and I think he got just what he deserved. And that sounds like, sounds like Jonah, doesn't it? Well, well, let's go back. Let's see. Jonah's problem was with justice. Well, there are the nice plants in our lives that provide us with shade. And those plants are the best plants of all, and they, they should be protected at all costs. I, tell you, I can think of a guy who, for some reason, has a reputation for being rude, but he has always treated me well. And when I think about it, when I really think about it, I bet those people who complain about him, they're just being petty. They're probably jealous of him. I bet that was the reason he got fired. Poor fellow. It just makes me so angry at the injustice of it all. Well, that sounds like Jonah too, doesn't it? See, so you get the point there. You see how anger clouds our sense of justice. Either we're already, already been angry and it prevents us from knowing when justice or mercy is called for, or we... We get involved in something, and then we get angry, and, it, and, and because it impacts us, you know, we're so upset with whoever it was. Anger simply is not a good passion to guide our sense of justice. And that's what Jonah was happening to Jonah. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. But if we're honest with ourselves, more often than not, that anger is has a little bit more unrighteousness mixed in it than righteousness. So the great lesson here is what anger, how it can impact us. Now here, though, I want to give what is really the theme of the whole book after, as we have studied it. The primary theme of Jonah's story can be found in a comment by Jesus. When he was questioned about his ministry, 
And the incident takes place, it's in Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13, and Jesus has called Matthew to come follow him. Matthew has. Matthew invites Jesus to his home. Matthew invites his friends who are bad people. Okay, he's got sinners and tax collectors. Let me begin reading. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. For those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, the Pharisees had the same distaste for sinners that Jonah did for the Ninevites. And the idea of actually befriending sinners for the purpose of winning them to the Lord That was as alien to them as it was to Jonah. Now, Jesus teaches the Pharisees what God was teaching Jonah. Mercy is what sinners need, that they might forsake their sin and turn to the Lord. And when one does turn to the Lord, it is mercy. Mercy more than sacrifice that the Lord desires to see in his people. Jesus made his sacrifice on the cross so that mercy might be given to us. That is the gospel. And that is the gospel for us to display in our lives to sinners, to enemies, to whomever. We who have received mercy may now give mercy. We thank you, our God, for such mercy that you have shown to us. We who were sinners, we who were enemies, you showed mercy to us. May we have that same spirit as our Heavenly Father, who is merciful to even to the wicked. May we have that same mercy in our own hearts, so that we might show the spirit of Jesus Christ. And there might be those who are wicked, who would turn from their ways and know your love. Christ's name we pray. Amen.